0: me read our text we're in chapter 1 i'll be starting in verse 12 and we'll go through verse 22 we'll, i think 23 and 24 actually go with the next section so we'll stop at verse 22 from god's holy word for our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us on that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will boast of us, as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has, put, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's been a few weeks since we started this series of sermons in Second Corinthians, this very autobiographical letter of Paul to the church. He talks about himself quite a bit, but as a minister of the gospel for the sake of the church to whom he's writing and for our sakes. He goes through all this material. So 2 Corinthians uh, talks very openly about the things Paul suffered and why God allows suffering. And here Paul is grappling with being misunderstood, indeed being charged with some pretty strong things. Weak, vacillating, flapping in the wind. My question by way of introduction is, why does Paul stick with these Corinthians? When he is so misunderstood, when they resist his ministry and he's written them letters, he has visited, uh, even a painful visit, things weren't really falling together well in Corinth. Why does Paul stick with them? The well-aged preacher, Kent Hughes, he's retired now but he's still busy, reminds us that people can be tough. It can be difficult to be in ministry. And he even cited a story that got my attention because he said even uh, in one church in Scotland, he had heard people not only go to hear the gospel, but a lot of believers in that church went to hear if the gospel was being preached. And the preacher was always being scrutinized. People can be tough. Why does Paul hang in there with these Corinthians? There are a lot of other places he could have gone. Why was he so confident that things would work out? He, he says that at the end day, you're going to be boasting in me. So it's all going to work out. Where does this confidence come from? You need to remember the context and what happened when Paul first arrived at Corinth. So by way of introduction, let's take a very quick look at Acts 18, just to read the verses. Acts chapter 18, to see it for yourself. The Acts of the Apostles, they're traveling, a lot of geography. Paul had come to Corinth in Acts 18. Some people had believed, and that's wonderful. Let's start in verse 9. Many of the Corinthians heard Paul and believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul had gotten off to a good start and maybe was thinking, what should my plans be? And the Lord made clear to him, stick with these Corinthians. I have many people here in this city. A special revelation for a specially challenging ministry context. So I think that's why Paul sticks with these Corinthians through so many difficulties. And he desires to reach the point where God is praised and the gospel is well established. So here in 2 Corinthians, the body of his letter begins in verse 12. Introductory matters have already taken place. He gave out some wonderful uh, bits of information about himself and the Lord and suffering and how God works. And now he's starting on the main body of his letter in verse 12. Our boast is this, and he wants to make clear why he didn't come again to Corinth, why his plans changed. And he wants to address the criticism. And it's interesting, this first section, verses 12 through 14, have this word boasting. It begins with boasting and it ends in verse 14 with boasting. It's a small unit. It's really the theme for the whole letter. It's not just the beginning of the body or Paul's beginning to make his defense to those critics that had sent him critical comments. But he's giving the theme and thesis of his letter. Namely, that God is at work. The grace of God is at work here. It's at work in me. It was at work in me when I came to you. It's still at work. And this is our boast. I'm writing you letters. And as you read and reflect and study those letters inspired by God... You will come to see this, and together we will boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and all he does. This is Paul's theme, that we would read God's word to know God, to know ourselves, and to make God known. Wonderful stuff, as Paul begins his defense. Notice the first thing he brings up is his conscience. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. And he's writing in the in, in the third person plural. You know, he's talking about uh, um, this, he's talking about himself and the other men that went with him to and fro to uh, Corinth, and and so it's in the plural. Our conscience, we behaved in the world, specifically we behaved among you with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. That has echoes of first. Corinthians chapter 1. Corinth, famous for its orders, famous for its pursuit of wisdom. Paul said, we didn't play that game. We preached Christ and him crucified. And the word here translated into the ESV, simplicity. Some Bibles, I'm not sure if I, I didn't look at the King James, translate holiness. There's just two Greek letters. And there are some manuscripts that say the word for holiness as opposed to the word for simplicity. I think the best evidence is for this translation simplicity. It fits the context and Paul's other usage in this letter. What is he saying? We have a clear conscience. I I don't I don't have the prick of anything wrong that I did among you or anything wrong that I said to you. Uh, I'm checking the lights on my dashboard of my conscience, and I don't see any red ones. I don't see any yellow ones. Nothing's flashing. Status is normal. Why would Paul appeal to his conscience? Well, as Derek Prime says, the conscience is God's monitor in our soul. And the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, constantly educates our conscience by the scriptures. I was thinking even as I read the quote that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to process some uh, system updates to our conscience. When we're sinful, our conscience isn't working so well. It's been abused. There might be some malware in there working on it. But as a Christian, the Holy Spirit uses Scripture to straighten, adjust, and calibrate your conscience. Check yourself. You remember the last time your conscience put out the red flashing light? Whoa, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't go there. Don't look that way. Don't touch that. It's a help to us to avoid sin and temptation and entanglements. It, it usually triggers when we're venturing into gray areas. Believers, we need to fight the good fight of faith and have a clear conscience. It was a priority in the life of Paul. His conscience as a Pharisee was finally honed. But God directed it, redirected it, as opposed to persecuting Christians to serving Christ. Paul's record and legacy of his conscience is very clear. In the book of Acts, he says uh, twice about his conscience. uh, Acts 23, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Who can say that? Paul said it. Or later in Acts 24, he made the comment, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. There's a clue. You don't have a legacy like Paul's with his clear conscience unless you take pains. You, 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 you get up early. You pray. You guard. You fill your mind with scripture. You perform all the maintenance you can. You're vigilant, you're perspicuous, you, 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 you look at everything around you to guard your conscience. I don't know if you follow me on social media. I saw something from Tim Challies and I copied it and put it on my story on Instagram. Maybe I put it on Facebook. This great quote that our minds were not made for all the data Our screens are constantly dumping on us. That's too much data. And we try to swim in that deep end of the pool, I'm elaborating now, Uh, and we neglect the most important thing, our soul. The goal in life isn't to stay up to date on all the news or to hear all the the thoughts about the athletic team you follow or, or. Or to garner every good recipe that's floating around the internet. Our goal is the care and nurture of our souls to live a life pleasing to our God. To be faithful in all he gives us to do. And it's hard to perform those system updates to your conscience when everything else is clogging up the bandwidth. Ephemeral things that will pass. Can we honestly appear, appeal to a clear conscience, especially in times of conflict? Remember the context. Paul's being charged with some things. He's going to do some explaining, but he starts off with this declaration. I've checked myself as I do regularly. God has not put me under conviction for how I behave. My conscience is clear. And more than that, he's not just speaking of his conscience in this paragraph that becomes the theme for the letter he speaks of his sound hope he has a conviction and a hopeful one that this will all work out when they look at what he has written what God has spoken to them through his pen verse uh, 13 for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That's a hopeful comment that what? That the word of God will accomplish what God sent it to do. Echoes of Isaiah 55. God's word will not return void. Paul has written to these Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, a pretty big letter. He had also written to them uh, 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 a lost letter after his painful visit. We'll recap the itinerary. So he's written to them, and this is now the third letter. He says, I'm putting this in writing. And what's the advantage of putting something in writing? You can read it over and over again. You can look at it. You can search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Before Paul gives the rest of his defense or gives the rest of this letter, and defends himself against all those super apostles, he says, I know God's word is going to bring us to the same place. I'll boast of you and you'll boast of me. And it's not human boasting. It's boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul looked for that eventual reversal of the toughest church he ever worked with, the church in Corinth. We're all going to be there. It's going to be a great ending. And he holds that before them even as paul wrote to them in first corinthians and second corinthians and calls them saints saints is a bible word for christians but he emphasizes it even knowing that there was sin in corinth because i know how it's going to end paul did not merely pass along the word of god he believed it let me ask you when you read the bible each day as you should Are you just reading it to check off your checklist? Or are you believing it? Is it finding a home among you? Let the word of God dwell in you richly. How can a young man keep his life pure? By guarding it according to God's word. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need to read it and believe it. We need to hear it and believe it. Paul's hope. Derek Prime said this as Paul's having this dialogue with the Corinthians and opening himself. Derek Prime said, as we get to know and appreciate the genuineness of one another's holiness and sincerity, we are similarly able to boast of each other as the true work of God. This boasting is not in ourselves, but in God. If you've ever been in a discipling relationship, either being discipled by a more mature Christian or discipling a younger Christian, those are some of my favorite things to do. And as you see someone making progress, you don't necessarily say, oh, I'm pretty good at this. No, you just rejoice at what God is doing. Paul's boast here is a testimony to the grace of God. I want you to see that element of grace even as he begins. But let's press on because Paul goes on to to grapple very intentionally with their criticisms. And he gives an explanation. And the essence of his explanation, watch for this, his essence is in the character of God, the faithfulness of God. How does Paul explain their misunderstanding? He says, "Look, look to the Lord I serve. So we continue with verses 15 and following. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you at first. So that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So he's he's talking about his plans. But then in verse 17, he acknowledges the criticisms. He puts it in the form of a question. So we infer the criticisms from the defense. He says, Was I vacillating? Because the charge was, Paul, you're vacillating. You're not here. You're sending us another letter. You said you were coming. What's the matter, Paul? Change your mind? You're a double-minded man. You're a liar. You said you would be here. How, how can we trust a man who lies? How can how can he be so changing? Our God doesn't change. Paul's vacillating. He's a lightweight. That word for vacillating, easily blowing in the wind. We shouldn't be changing. We should reflect the character of God. We should never lie. Where's Paul's integrity? All these charges coming at Paul because his itinerary changed. We need to say, yes, integrity in ministry is vital. There's a whole new wave coming out about a denomination that had covered up some charges of sexual abuse. They hadn't come forward. And you think we would have learned that lesson, that if a a church finds something, it should make that public and not cover it up. Those in leadership in Christian ministry, your integrity is of great importance. It's crucial. One of the most well-known teachings of Jesus, at least among the early church, and I'm sure you've heard it, you can remember it, is when Jesus taught us to let our, uh, what we say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. So well known, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, James, who wrote his wise epistle, quoted it in James five twelve. He says, above all brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Wise James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He had heard what Jesus said. Most Christians knew it. Yes be yes, no be no. Don't blur it. don't equivocate. Well, what I really mean is it depends what the meaning of is is. And, and all, the, all, the, all the gymnastics we do. And James says, you better do that so you don't fall under condemnation. Because you start doing that, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be condemned. So we know where Jesus wants believers to be. What's happened to Paul? Was he saying yes and no in the same voice? Paul asks that, did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? Paul's grappling with that. Is that what you're saying about me? And the form of the Greek question there is one which demands a negative answer. He's not genuinely asking, what do you guys think? Of course not. Of course I didn't do that. That's not the way I work. I hear you. I hear your criticisms. I I hear what you're saying. That's not the case. It's not vacillating. It's not double talk. It's not according to worldly wisdom or half-truths. Well, why do the criticisms come up at all? Why these questions? Let's do a quick recap of the chronology here. I think I have four little bullet points. If you're going to make a timeline to understand Paul's visits and letters. So here we go. I think I've worked it out. Originally, Paul was going to leave Asia, go to Macedonia, go to Achaia, and then to Judea. That's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. He planted the church. He writes them a letter. I'm going to swing by. And then after 1 Corinthians, he made a painful visit That's alluded to here in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. Planted the church, wrote 1 Corinthians, then made this painful visit because things were unraveling. He had to go and talk about discipline. And the painful visit didn't seem to resolve much by the time he had left. But he had promised to return before he went on to Macedonia. Third. Rather than visit again, have another painful visit, Paul wrote a letter that is now lost to us. I just call it the lost letter. He refers to that here in verse 23 and verse chapter 2, 24. He wrote to them. Why did he write to them? Why didn't he do another painful visit? Well, he tried the painful visit. He says, I'll write and I'll send them a letter and let that do its work. And you know, that lost letter seemed to have done the trick. The lost letter really helped. And most people were back on track as Paul gets reports from Timothy or whoever. And there's just a small faction that's not behaving. Paul reasoned that that was better. And then he reverted to the original plan. I'll I'll visit later. Finally, now he's writing 2 Corinthians and he's explaining this. I didn't come for another painful visit. I sent a letter and God has blessed that. But I need to answer this minority position. And so he uses questions to contradict the criticisms. And then he explains himself further. Verses 15 16 tell us this. Tell us first that the aims of his ministry was for their care. Paul's travel was not about Paul. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. That was his first aim. He wanted to bless them and give them opportunity. He wanted to bring them more good news. He wanted to bring them an experience of grace. I'll explain that in a second. And he wanted to give them the privilege of helping send him off to Jerusalem with the big offering that he's been traveling and collecting for the suffering church in Jerusalem. He wanted to give them that opportunity prominent role you ever watch political conventions well at least the old way they used to be done It'd all be in an arena and the state of Nebraska gives five votes to so-and-so and 20 votes to the favorite son of Nebraska you know how they do that and to get the nomination over the top they usually let a very important state go last sometimes it's a big state they want to win or it's the state where the candidate is from and then all the hoopla breaks out. There's a place of privilege amongst the many. Paul was extending that to the Corinthians. He's not thinking about himself. Oh, I know you guys are rich. I'm gonna come there, stay another year and a half. You got good food in Corinth. No, he's saying, aims of my ministry are to care for you. And he says explicitly to give you this opportunity. It's an unusual phrase in the Greek. A second grace the word experience is part of the translators help but I want to give you a second grace chorus and you know that could also be the word for gift he wanted to give them something that would benefit them and what most scholars believe he's talking about he wanted to give them a second opportunity to contribute to the offering that may strike Western Christians what he wants to take a second offering how is that going to bless them It's an opportunity to show how much God has blessed you. It's a blessing. It's more blessed to give than receive. Have we heard that? Paul will talk about some things when we get to chapter 8 and chapter 9. Remember, he talks about that, that. that's part of the problem. They become a little bit too materialistic. You'll be blessed when I come and you have an opportunity. That's part of my plan. I'm thinking of you. So pulling back. His first explanation is, whatever I've decided to do, it's because of you. A pastor should care for the church. An apostle cares for his mission that God has given him, given to him. We'll talk more later about giving. But notice as well, as he gives this uh, defense, after verse 17, when we get to verse 18, he begins to give a theological explanation. Not just talking about his ministry and his love for them, but he gives a theological explanation. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. And he says a few more things that we'll get to. He begins speaking of the Lord and the character of Jesus Christ that he made known to the Corinthians. He says, just as I preached the gospel, I lived in accordance with that. Why would I say yes and no when we're all here to talk about Christ and in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. Notice how verse 18 starts when he says, for God, surely as God is faithful, he is taking an oath. He is pointing them to the faithfulness of God. And how has God been faithful? He's been faithful to Paul. Early in the chapter, he said how he almost died. We, we don't know the specifics, but he almost died. But Paul knows God is faithful. And Paul knows that God has people in Corinth. Remember that special revelation? He's not giving up on them. God has strengthened me to serve you and I'm going to keep doing it. Surely as God is faithful to me and to you, this is the way it is. I'm not being fickle. I'm not just changing my mind willy-nilly. I'm acting consistently in promoting Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed. Everything's fulfilled in him. Our plans may change. But the promises of God in Christ are sure and certain. And that's what he wants them to see. His confidence in the word of God is at stake here. And Christ is at the center of all these promises. When Paul talks about proclaiming the Lord, it was Paul who told those Corinthians about Jesus for the very first time. It was Paul who's written to them now a third time. The middle letter being lost. Paul's confidence was that God's word would bear fruit in that place. And as we look at Paul's confidence in the word of God and Paul's commitment to proclaiming Christ, we should be encouraged as we handle God's word. It's connected to the character of God. God is faithful to his word, God is faithful to the messengers of his word. Calvin wrote on this passage, he said, The ministry of the word, here and now, should have the same assurance of conscience as Paul does when we enter the pulpit to speak in Christ's name, knowing that uh, our preaching, our doctrine, can no more be overthrown than God himself. God's word, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the Lord Jesus, making great the name of God. Is connected to the character of God. Paul is not fickle. Paul is faithful to the God who's faithful to him. And then I paused and wanted to focus on verse 20 and following, because here we see the gracious work of God unfolded even further. Notice what Paul's doing. He's trying to answer criticisms, but he doesn't dwell on this for that. He doesn't say, Oh, I've got proof, I've got witnesses. He doesn't get bogged down in arguing. He's turned to a theological consideration. He wants to draw everyone's eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his goal in ministry, even when he's being criticized. So he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He talked about the yes and no, ending verse 19. And now he's triggered in verse 20. He says he's going to go off and talk about Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice how much of that is in the present tense. That's important. Paul's talking not simply how it's all going to work out in the end of He's talking about today. And he says things like, uh, It is God who establishes us, present tense, with you in Christ. But it begins with proclaiming the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In all of Paul's writings, all his epistles, this is the only place where verse 19 he calls Jesus The Son of God, Jesus Christ. That particular phrase, with the emphasis on divinity, is found only here in Paul's epistles. It's significant because that's whom he's proclaiming, that's whom he preached. And even now, that's the key to understanding his ministry. And he goes on to say Christ is at the center of all God's promises in verse 20. What promises? all the promises of the old testament all the promises of the gospel that's been preached and the emerging letters and books of the new testament all the promises if god's made a promise it's fulfilled in and through christ either in the past the present or the future as paul barnett says all the promises of god Converge like so many lines at one point. The Son of God, whom God and His, whom Paul and His companions proclaimed, Christ is at the center of the promises. Paul's saying, "You guys want to discuss my itinerary? I want to discuss the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an evasion, but it's a refocusing. He's saying Jesus is in charge here." And that's how we find any blessing is through him and in him. It's the focus of the gospel, focus of all the promises. And the response to hearing that is this amen. A beautiful sentence as he gives it here. If you take time to read it slowly, the end of verse 20. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we together utter our amen to God For his glory. What does the word amen mean? Well, that's what you say at the end of the prayer. It doesn't mean the end. The end. Amen means it is true. It means so be it if it's in the imperative sense. It is true. When you hear Jesus teaching in the Gospels and he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, He's saying, like us Legos Atois. And he's taking the, the Aramaic, the Hebrew expression, amen, and he's putting it in as saying, this is so true, and he repeats it twice for emphasis, hear me. Okay, so amen means, yes, it's true. It means, so be it. It's reality. I agree. We offer our amen through Christ to God for his glory. Paul says that whatever we say or do, do for the glory of God. If we can say anything is reality, anything is good and right and proper, it is through Christ. And we make that known to God, that amen. Well, before we leave this section, I want to also point out the gracious work of God is done by the triune God. There's a reference here to the Trinity If you hadn't noticed, notice the activity Paul describes that God does on our behalf, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. It is God—we could say God the Father—who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Father establishes; we are anointed; we're. We're washed in the blood of Christ. We're, we're converted in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the work is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And the word seal here is, is, is a mark of ownership set upon us. It is a, a down payment. It's in earnest. Just as in a marriage, one man and one woman, ex- often, they don't have to, they often exchange a token and a pledge. Of my undying love and it's worn on the finger as we know that's closest to the heart it's a token and a pledge the Holy Spirit is given to us he is poured out upon us because God is working in us and wants us to have that mark of ownership that down payment that sense of security Paul is refocusing these Corinthians away from dithering over his itinerary to looking at how God has been at work and is at work. And he says, it's God who established us. He's putting them graciously in the same boat as he is. That's grace. The same people that are troubling him, calling him names. He says, God's at work here. And don't overlook that. Let me, as a pastor, when I see a phrase like that, I want to take the opportunity to ask. If you're a believer, it says here that God has put his seal on you and given you his spirit in your hearts as a guarantee, as a down payment. How do you know? Do I have the Holy Spirit? You know, in some different sects and groups, talk about you have to speak in tongues or do this or that. The fundamental answer, how do you know if you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, securing you in your relationship with God, is this. Does the Spirit give you an awareness of God as your Father? comes from Romans chapter 8. I encourage you to look there before we close. Romans 8, just a couple verses. It's in verse 15, but let me read verse 14. Then 15 and 16. Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, that's where we're at. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the primary mark. If you know God as your Father, if you are in that relationship, it's the Spirit who makes that knowledge possible. Not extraordinary gifts or visions or supernatural things that people so quickly connect with the Holy Spirit. The gracious work of our triune God makes it so. I want to leave you this morning with some applications. And I've kind of gathered them under three categories. First, when you're misunderstood. And then secondly, when you're challenged or in conflict. And third, when you're reflecting or pondering. From reading this portion of God's word, when you are misunderstood, follow Paul's example. Act openly and honestly. Examine your conscience first before you make any defense. Don't get defensive. I think it's clear that Paul examined his conscience before he replied and then gave the reply that my conscience has given me the green light. Christians, we need to act honestly. And we do need to explain if we've been misunderstood. Especially in the world of emails and the world of texting. I don't need to give any specific examples, but I imagine you can identify With someone who sends a text or you have sent a text and it's misunderstood what you're doing that right now what do you mean by that it could be unclear in its brevity paul has been misunderstood and people are saying some scurrilous things about him and yet he acts honestly and openly that's the way he's always operated He, he said i act with simplicity and sincerity What do we do when we're challenged? When we are challenged, I would look to the faithfulness of God. I would lean upon the faithfulness of God. It seems that Paul has done that. I'm sure Paul hears these reports. He puts his head in his hand and says, oh no, Lord, do I write them another painful letter? Do I make a painful visit? What do I do? He leaned upon the faithfulness of God to him. And that gave him strength for writing. Paul's theology helped him with his practice of ministry, with living life. When he first wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew God was faithful. He mentions it in his letters. He knows it in his life. When you're challenged, oftentimes you look at what resources you have and how you're going to respond. But remember, first and foremost, who you belong to. And if God has allowed the trouble to come to you, well, James has a lot to say about that. How trials are at work in us who believe. Look upon the faithfulness of God. Lean upon the faithfulness of God. And when pondering, that's a favorite word of mine, what do I mean? When you have that moment to reflect, the after-action report, the debriefing, when you're thinking about, how did that all go? How did I get here? When you're pondering, when you have those thoughtful moments, and they're rare, but make time for them, always praise the Lord for his grace god is worthy to be praised paul's here beginning his defense people are attacking him he thinks it'll turn out well in the end but he reminds them god is at work and therefore we give our amen to god you may not like how god works you may not always appreciate it but when god makes you aware of it praise him for it submit to it always praise the lord for his grace don't live according to worldly wisdom and keep count and and who you're going to pay back. Walk in grace and praise the God of grace. May God's word help us this day and always. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make your word fruitful in our lives, that you would bless our minds with understanding of it, and that you would cause our lives to be the embodiment of it, that we would live as Paul did uprightly, simply, and focused on Christ. May we help one another pursue Christ and love Christ more. This we pray in his name. So be it. Amen. Amen.